Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the German economic minister and the French finance minister both warning that the Russian shutoff of gas to Western Europe via the Nord Stream pipeline for maintenance is likely to be permanent and that the impact will be felt in the coming winter months, prompting a recession in Germany and Italy, which are expected to be the hardest hit. Joining us from the UK is Jonathan Stern, the founder of the Natural Gas Program at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, where he's also a distinguished research fellow. He is Honorary Professor at the Centre for Energy, Petroleum and Mineral Law and Policy at the University of Dundee, visiting professor at Imperial College's Centre for Environmental Policy in London, and the author of several books, the most recent of which is The Pricing of Internationally Traded Gas. With Putin making more and more money from oil and gas sales, as energy prices have soared since his war against Ukraine, the question arises, will Germany and other European countries continue a moral stance against Russian aggression, or will they bend to Putin's blackmail in order to avert a deep recession? Then, as the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection is about to explore Trump's connections with the militia groups who saw him as their leader of a fascist coup attempt, we'll examine the upcoming push by Trump and the election deniers dominating the GOP he controls and the extent that the political left in this country is more focused on the shortcomings of their leaders than they are alarmed and activated by the looming fascist takeover of the country. Joining us is Ryan Cooper, Managing Editor of the American Prospect and the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast, as well as the author of How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. He joins us to discuss his article at ryancooper.com, Will No One Defend the American Republic? Then finally, we'll get an assessment of the upcoming hearing at which the former spokesperson for the Oath Keepers militia will testify and speak with Brian Levin, a criminologist, civil rights attorney, professor of criminal justice, and director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University, San Bernardino. He specializes in analysis of hate crime, terrorism, and legal issues, and previously served as the Associate Director of Legal Affairs for the Southern Poverty Law Center's Clans, Clan Watch Militia Task Force in Montgomery, Alabama, and he has testified before Congress's Homeland Security Subcommittee on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now from the UK is Jonathan Stern, who is the founder of the Natural Gas Program at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, where he's also a distinguished research fellow. He's an honorary professor at the Center for Energy, Petroleum and Mineral Law and Policy at the University of Dundee and a visiting professor at Imperial College's Center for Environmental Policy in London 
and is the author of several books, the most recent of which is The Pricing of Internationally Traded Gas. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Stern. Thank you very much. So, uh, Jonathan, uh, Germany's economics minister has made a rather alarming statement uh, saying that uh, he expects that the Russian cutoff for natural gas supply via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which is now shut down for maintenance, may end up being permanent. So what's your sense then of whether or not uh, this is basically routine maintenance from July the 11th to July the 21st, or indeed the beginning of a real energy war in Europe? Well, the routine, the, the maintenance period has been set in advance, so we always knew this would be the maintenance period, and there is always a routine maintenance period around this time because, of course, this is the time of warm weather in Europe and therefore low gas demand. The problem is that the sanctions have impacted uh, the ability of the Russians to service the turbines at the compressor station for the Nord Stream pipeline. And after a a long period of to and fro, um, we discovered that indeed Siemens in Canada has one of the turbines which it has repaired but was unable to return to Russia because of the sanctions. We now understand that it will return this turbine to Germany, which will then have to return it to Russia, and that will require sanctions waivers. But the big question is whether this will allow the, the pipeline to start up in full flow or whether there will still be a, a reduced flow or indeed, as the German minister and one or two other people in Germany have said, whether this is just an excuse for the Russians to decide that they're going to shut it down altogether and put more pressure on European gas and energy supply. Well, haven't they already reduced the supply of Russian gas by 60%? They have, but their story, which we don't necessarily need to accept, but their story is this is a result of the sanctions that you have imposed. If you, if you will relax the sanctions, we can restore the flow. Now, again, there's a certain amount of politics on, on all sides here. And, and the question is, you know, is this really, is, is the full 60% reduction really a result of sanctions or is it really uh, politics of the Kremlin trying to put pressure on Europe and and conduct this kind of energy war um, which both sides are are engaged in? And and the answer is, unless you're very, very close to the technical side of things, much closer than certainly I am, you don't really know. But what we do know, though, is that Europe depends on Russia for about 40% of its total natural gas needs. Yeah, I mean, that's... that's a generalized term the the key thing is that some countries are very much more dependent and some less dependent Uh, but germany is very much dependent on russian gas and so is italy and so are some of the smaller countries whereas of course countries like the uk or spain are, are not really dependent but of course in terms of the continent uh any kind of shortage of gas impacts the price. That's why we see such high prices at the moment. Well, it's not only the German uh, economics minister warning that the Russian cutoff for maintenance may well be permanent. France's finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, he said on Sunday 
that the Europeans should prepare for the most likely scenario of a total cutoff of Russian gas. So, um, ab- yeah, absolutely, and I mean, and so did Fatih Birol of the International Energy Agency, and and that's right. People should. We have got to get ready. The problem is <laughs> um, that it's all right saying we've got to get ready. But actually, it's not clear how how we do get ready, because getting ready would suggest that we can do something immediate. And it's not at all clear that we can do anything immediate, um, because a lot of the measures that we need to take would take you know a little bit more time to put in place. But what about predicting this and getting maximum storage? Has that happened? Well, we've got much more storage, uh, much much higher levels of storage in Europe than maybe three months ago when the conflict started, we thought we would have. Um, but that relies on having, having significant supplies coming into Europe now. And in fact, um, because of the progressive diminution of Nord Stream supplies, we've put less gas into storage in the last few weeks than was the case previously. So we're not in bad shape in relation to storage. But if Nord Stream really does shut down or fails to reopen on the 21st of July, um, then it's going to be hard to add to storage because actually we may well need um, the supply, uh, all the supply that we're getting. Um, this is very, very dependent on weather and also issues like have we got uh, a respectable um, supply of wind uh, and solar. So there's a, there's a lot of weather dependency in terms of what our situation will be. But if we don't see Nord Stream supplies resume, we are going to be in significant trouble uh, in relation to the winter, which in Europe starts about the 1st of October. So you could have a very, very tough winter in Europe, and particularly in Germany, where it's not just the heating of homes we're talking about. It's providing electricity and also for enormous energy demands for industry. So I guess, are we looking at a possible recession, starting a deeper one in Germany than anywhere else, probably? I think we will. We are definitely looking at recession. The question is, how deep is it going to be? The work that we just published suggests that our gas demand this year in Europe was already down very significantly, and we can expect that to continue. But even with substantially reduced gas demand, we are going to struggle if we don't have any Russian gas from Nord Stream. We still have some Russian gas through Ukraine, but you know, as you said a moment ago, uh, many are projecting even that may stop anytime soon. If we do not have any Russian gas from the end of this month onwards, we are going to really struggle almost whatever gas we have in storage. And countries like Germany and Italy and some other countries like Czech Republic, Slovakia are going to be in bad shape. Um, So that is going to require rationing. We are actually expecting the European Union to come out with a document either this week or next week, which will say, at least determine how available gas will be rationed between member states. Um, we've yet to see whether that will have a lot of detail or just some principles. Well, already they're talking about rationing in Germany and instead of showering for 10 minutes with using hot water for 10 minutes, do a five-minute shower. But if you look at the overall 
you know, it, it just in the basis of our conversation so far, Jonathan, it would seem that this is deliberate on the part of Putin. He knows exactly what he's doing. He reduced the flow of gas for the last few months down by 60% so that the Europeans didn't have much ability to fill up their storage. And if he does cut off the gas now or doesn't come back on after this 10-day period of maintenance, then obviously the winter's going to be incredibly tough on the Europeans. And then on top of that, since this war began, because of the price of oil and gas went up so much, Russia's just absolutely getting a windfall now, something like 100 billion euros in revenue from oil and gas since this war began. So contrary to the idea that the sanctions are hurting Putin, the windfall he's getting from uh, oil sales is, is pretty enormous. And it looks like he's got a lot of leverage here. Well, you know, I'm afraid this is what, this is the problem with sanctions. They have uh, results that you don't predict. And of course, Putin is, in his announcements, he's ramming this down our throats in Europe, which is, you know, this is all your fault. You decide to do this. We don't have any option but to, but to follow up. Um, and, and this is doing his, his propaganda no harm at all. Now, the difficulty for European politicians is, first of all, what can they do about this? And they turn, you know, we've already said in Europe, we will stop importing Russian coal around the summer. We will stop importing Russian oil towards the end of the year. But if that causes a shut in of a lot of Russian exports, which at least in the short term it might, it will force up prices globally. Um, there's no real good answer to this. Politicians have got to take some very tough decisions. In other words, We've, we're going to take a moral stand on depriving Putin of what we think of as his oil and gas and coal leverage over Europe. Then we're going to have to accept pain ourselves. The question that a lot of people are raising is, well, does this cutoff of Russian gas, um, that, that which, is, which is oil, gas and coal, which is our moral stand in order to support Ukraine, is this really good for Ukraine? In other words, is the fact that Europe may may suffer significant damage? Does this help Ukraine? It's very difficult to to decide on a moral stand on this versus a pragmatic question of the damage that may be done to the European economies. I I really don't envy politicians here. There's no easy answer to this. But haven't the Russians also cut off the pipeline from Kazakhstan as well? Yeah, but the pipe, the pipeline from Kazakhstan, that's that's an oil pipeline. Right. Uh, they have cut it. They have cut it off, um, and and you know this just adds to all of the pressure that we're seeing on oil prices and oil markets, which is going to ramp up as we move through the summer and the driving season in the U.S. And we don't have any significant additional global oil that can immediately be brought forward. And so we're looking at oil prices north of $100 a barrel for some time. Difficult to say how long, because, as I say, recession, which we know is coming, is probably going to take care of some of that demand. But the outlook is not at all good. 
And again, I'm speaking with Jonathan Stern, who is in the UK, where he is the founder of the Natural Gas Program at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, where he's also a distinguished research fellow. And he's an honorary professor at the Center for Energy, Petroleum and Mineral Law and Policy at the University of Dundee, and a visiting professor at Imperial College's Center for Environmental Policy in London, and is the author of several books, the most recent of which is The Pricing of Internationally Traded Gas. So isn't it obvious, Jonathan, that Putin is turning the screws and saying, you know, uh, you support Ukraine and I'm going to make you suffer? And he's hoping that, as you mentioned, the choice between a moral stance and a pragmatic one. He's obviously putting pressure on the Europeans to be more pragmatic, in other words, sell out the Ukrainians. Uh, Isn't that what's happening here? Meanwhile, he's making a ton of money because the price of oil is being and gas are being driven up. I think two things are happening, what you just said, but also he has decided that, uh, that Western sanctions are waging economic war on Russia and that he is going to therefore re- respond in kind by uh, waging whatever economic, I don't, know, I don't know whether war is the right, the right term or pressure, there's, there's probably some correct term, but he is going to reciprocate against these sanctions by putting as much pressure on European, but also potentially global economies. And we've got to remember this isn't just about energy. It's about grains as well. Um, uh, uh, The export of Russian and Ukrainian grain to particularly the global south. He is going to put as much pressure on, on other actors and European actors as he can in what he sees as a reciprocal action for what is being done to the Russian economy. And he doesn't think it's because he invaded the country next door? Absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, this is the... Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, and and I'm not saying that the, the sanctions that have been placed on him are unjustified. I think they're completely justified. You know, you don't suddenly decide that a country next door to you doesn't exist and say you know, we're taking over this country for humanitarian reasons. You, 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 know, you, just, you just don't do that. Um, and therefore, any, any actions against him are completely justified. The problem is that these actions are having consequences, which, as we've just said to each other, have, you know, were not expected when they were, when, when, when they were devised. And we've got, to, we've got to be able to accept that they're going to have negative consequences for certainly us in Europe, probably the global south in terms of grain, and possibly the global energy market in terms of oil, gas, and coal. So in the last couple of minutes, then, Jonathan, uh, are there any alternatives? Uh, how much liquid national gas can you get from Qatar and from the United States? Can you get the Algerians to supply more. I think the supplies from Libya have been cut off in part by militias financed and supported by the Russians. And the work that we've done in Oxford suggests that you can get some more pipeline gas and you can get some more LNG as long as we don't have too many incidents other than uh, there's a big fire at the Freeport LNG terminal in, in the US which has cut off that terminal. We can get some additional supplies, but it's not going to be enough to avoid a very tough winter this year and probably a very tough year next year. When we get to 2024, 25, probably 
we can do something. Once we get to 26, 27, we see a lot more light at the end of that tunnel. But if, if, we, if things don't improve in relation to particularly natural gas in Europe in terms of maintaining some degree of supply from the Russian side, we see a very tough couple of years ahead of us. And just in closing, you mentioned wind and solar. You know, it's pretty easy to put up a wind farm. I think uh, the time lag is, is is not very long compared to an LNG terminal, which takes years, a nuclear yep. power plant that takes at least a decade. Germany did shut down its nuclear power plants. Is that, are they going to rethink that? And uh, what can you? How much wind can you stand up quickly? Well, you can stand up quite a lot of wind quickly. The problem is that you know when the wind's not blowing, which tends to be in um, cold, dark winters, you, you, you tend to have a problem there. Um, they're not planning to stop their closure of the nuclear sector, which happens very soon. And of course, this means they're going to have to run their coal stations for longer, which is going to affect their greenhouse gas targets. So it, there's no kind of easy answers here. Um, but what we do think is, as I say, in two or three years' time, with acceleration of all the options, we should be in much better shape in Europe, even without Russian gas. But until that happens, for, for that time span, the next two or three years, things are going to be tough without any Russian gas. With, with, with some Russian gas, with, with Nord Stream plus some from the Ukraine, um, we can probably get through unless we have a very cold winter. Well, Jonathan Stone, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Pleasure. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Stern, who is the founder of the Natural Gas Program at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, where he's also a distinguished research fellow. He is the honorary professor at the Center for Energy, Petroleum and Mineral Law and Policy at the University of Dundee, a visiting professor at Imperial College's Center for Environmental Policy in London, and is the author of several books, the most recent of which is The Pricing of Internationally Traded Gas. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing how the left in this country is more focused on the shortcomings of their leaders than they are alarmed and activated by the looming fascist takeover of the country. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ryan Cooper, Managing Editor at the American Prospect. He's also the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast, as well as the author of, of the new book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And he has an article at ryancooper.com, Will No One Defend the American Republic? Welcome to Background Briefing, Ryan Cooper. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And I just, uh, on the Sunday program, I spoke with Jeff Charlotte about his piece that's in Vanity Fair. And he sort of embedded himself with a lot of these uh, right-wing militias and these Christian nationalist uh, churches and in the state of Wisconsin with, the, with some of these anti-government militias. And 
tomorrow at the January 6th committee hearings, we'll be hearing some of what the connections between Trump's coup attempt and how he used these militias like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, etc. But if you just step back a little bit, it's so obvious that what happened on January the 6th was a fascist coup attempt by a proto-fascist who lost an election and and knew he lost an election, but hoisted this lie, which has metastasized and become the kind of driving belief system of the most of the Republican Party, and that not only do you have a fascist leader out there waiting to take back power, he has his own stormtroopers. And we don't know the full number of them, but it's significant, and he's got the passivity of the a passive acceptance of the Republican Party that it's legitimizing the inherent lies that this whole project is based on. And and then you've got a Democratic Party led by elderly folks who I don't think get the full understanding of the malice and the brutality and the venality of this project underway. So why is it that we aren't having a discussion in this country about a fascist coup attempt that is continuing and that we could end up in a country run by Donald Trump and people like Lauren Bobbitt, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Jim Jordan, these, you know, rabid junkyard dogs will be the cabinet, for God's sake. I mean, I don't get it why... The political left in this country is not focusing on what the real challenges are. Yeah, well, and I just add one more thing. You know that that the uh, you know institutional respectable shreds of the um, Republican Party are, are are all in on this too. You know, Ron DeSantis um, is you know he's he's smarter than Trump, I think, uh, but he is absolutely willing to indulge all the same types of uh, things. You know, he runs Florida in the same just sort of openly anti-democratic way. Um, And now, you know, the Supreme Court is going to take up this case on the independent state legislature doctrine, which, you know, would would allow gerrymandered Republican legislatures to to basically hand the election to the Republican um, or otherwise rig the system such that the Republican could not lose. And I think that uh, it, it reflects, you know, that there's just a total lack of faith in the American institutions across the whole left half of the political spectrum. On the on the sort of more centrist side, you know, the Biden people, they clearly don't believe in their legitimacy in defending the country from this attack, and they're and they're legitimacy in running it, you know, that they're, they are allowed to wield power in whatever way is necessary to, to defend, you know, the Constitution. Instead, you see this just helpless, you know, deer in the headlights routine about the Supreme Court, you know, and prosecuting Trump, you know, that notion inspires just this like, oh, are we allowed to do that? And, you know, there, there are uh, factions on the, the left, like the proper left, 
who are, you know, I think AOC is the most prominent person who's trying to do this, trying to say, no, we have to defend democratic government and like the, the basic principles of the constitution of like a gut, you know, uh, the, the consent of the governed and all that type of thing. But there's a lot of people on the left that just have decided that uh, America is, is just not worth saving. Um, and that, you know, there is no way that, that they could possibly uh, wield power either. And so, you know, the, the, the fascists are like any revolutionary. They're, they're pushing on a door that is just open. You know, no one is. I think that is maybe the most important factor in how uh, Republicans have gotten so radicalized is that they haven't faced any pushback on this. You know, um, they nominated Trump and, they, and he won and they didn't pay any price for anything. And he was just a constant lawbreaker. And now he's getting away with trying to throw, uh, overthrow the government, you know, just like the most serious political crime you could possibly imagine. And um, they're like, well, there are no rules. We can just do whatever we want. And these people are too chicken to fight back. And they might be right. And again, I'm speaking with Ryan Cooper, who's the managing editor at The American Prospect. He's the co-host of the Left Anchor podcast, as well as the author of the new book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And he has an article at ryancooper.com, Will No One Defend the American Republic? So your feeling then, you say that the left in this country feels that America is unalterably terrible. And I do get a lot of mail from that kind of infantile left that blames America first for everything. I mean, here you have Putin invading Ukraine. I mean, why not talk about that? You know, the sins of America, the American empire, etc. We know all about them, but comparing what's happening in the world where gangsters are taking over, and we have our gangster here who's in league with these gangsters, Trump is in league with Putin and Erdogan and all these characters. That's what's happening. This is not so much ideological. It's about democracy versus criminality. And unless you get behind the idea that you've got to stop the criminal takeover of America, that's your priority. You can, you can whine about the terrible things America's done in the past and we're not a perfect union and all this stuff. I mean, you write about it. You just say... The histories of all nations have many threads, and many of America's are dark indeed. But it is simply inaccurate to say that there is nothing worth defending or being proud of in there. Eradicating slavery was a great achievement. Enfranchising four million former slaves was one of the most radical expansions for democracy in world history. The New Deal was, on balance, a massive improvement on the status quo, even for black Americans. The Civil Rights Movement was a splendid achievement. So where's this leadership coming from frankly i'm surprised it's that some of the like in cnn you know you've got jake tapper laying it all out saying this is what's this is the most critical period in american history we've had a fascist coup attempt the fascists are at it they're trying to take over and they've got to be held to account i mean trump literally has got to be put in jail so don't you think the left ought to unite about that yeah you i mean you know the the I think it's telling in my list of, of achievements that there's nothing from the last, uh, you know, 50 years. Um, and I think that's a, a big part of the, the seeds of despair in this country is that it, 
it is in terrible condition in so many ways, you know, just the way that we allow our healthcare system to just rob people. Um, and the way that, you know, just the, the daily life uh, in, in this country for so many people, the hassle of it, the bureaucracy of, of just, you know, putting one foot in front of the other. Um, it, it makes it, you know, to, to have that belief, it's easy to say, you know, but, but to really believe in it, to really, you know, think, uh, it, hold in your heart, you know, in a sort of zealous fashion that, that you could, um, to inspire the kind of movement that I'm talking about, you need to actually have a deep down core belief. And it's, it's hard to, it's hard to do, but I think, you know, one, one, um, easy step, as you say, that, that you could make to inspire the sort of confidence, you know, in institutions that they're not just a complete joke and a disgrace, uh, would be to defend it from, uh, you know, from the, the, the fascist coup attempt, as you say, like, like any country, uh, any democratic country that, that was worth its salt would, you know, have on day one of this Congress today have arrested Trump and all of his top cronies, and they would have voted to kick out everyone who voted to overturn the election out of Congress. And that would give you a, you know, a brief moment of having massive majorities in the Congress, and then you could pass a bunch of you know, basically anti-fascist legislation to protect voting rights and to defeat gerrymandering. And I mean, the type of like, like any sort of healthy political antibodies, um, you know, and, and I think that that, uh, that helplessness, the lack of, um, you know, doing what would obviously be necessary, according to the rhetoric, even of Biden himself, uh, that, heavily contributes to that air of despair, you know, where it's like, okay, we're on the left, even if we have this theoretical, you know, belief in, you know, like Republican government and peaceful transfer of power and all that stuff. If Biden won't do like the very most basic thing to, you know, enforce the law against a, a fascist coup attempt, then it's like, it's like, it seems pointless. Right, but I I don't think we have the luxury to complain about, you know, the failings of our democratic system and how we aren't haven't really achieved anything like the Europeans have in terms of healthcare and other so, social democratic achievements. I mean, that's a that's a long battle. And you mentioned uh, the piece that I just read from your article. You know, there are things that there have, progress has been made. It, it's not perfect and it's inadequate. But we don't have the luxury of complaining about what we haven't achieved. No, what no, we I have I, to focus on is what we're about to lose, for Christ's sake. No, I agree with that. I the that part of the argument, you know, uh, um, we can convince ourselves. But I would say that part should be aimed, you know, understood as a responsibility of leaders. Um, this is something that Franklin Roosevelt uh, explicitly talked about: a motivation for the New Deal that you know, in exercising power to fix the depression was an absolutely critical part of defending American institutions because it was necessary to prove that they could work. Um, you know, otherwise you just sap your, your uh, uh, defense of you know, constitutional government of any kind of force. 
you know so uh activists could do their part but i think like like the democratic leadership should understand that as like a, a something that they need to you know start producing in a just a purely pragmatic sense you know so as i mentioned you know jake tapper on cnn is was laying out the case on his sunday program about what's really happening and that we are just critical moment in this country and you know is it possible that the rest of the media can wake up and there's no point complaining about biden's inability to marshal the democratic party to and focus on the real threat to american democracy maybe it's better to wait and see what the jamie the sixth committee can come up with once they make their case maybe then is the time to jump on that and to really frame what this battle's really about which is to stop america becoming a fascist country yeah that um it's certainly something you know we sh we should do. Uh, you know, I, I think that the the question will be over the next couple of years um, whether there should be someone else uh, nominated for president in twenty twenty four. You know, I feel like this this period is starting to bear a sort of eerie resemblance to the end of the eighteen fifties. Um, you know, and you had the secession, you know, crisis as promised by, you know, the South. And then the President Buchanan, who just didn't do anything really to stop all this like straight up treason. And they had to, you know, create a new political party um, led by, you know, a dynamic, uh, you know, younger kind of outsider guy. Lincoln, you know, is like almost totally unknown before he was um nominated you know a, a backbencher you might say and uh but in the you know in the meantime i i definitely agree that uh you know it's sort of everyone's responsibility to try to focus on you know the 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 key thing that's that's facing you know the threat to american institutions and even if as a new new polls has uh, Biden at 33% approval rating, just 50 points underwater with young people. Uh, you still should go and vote in the midterms, you know, and do any kind of other organizing that might be, uh, you know, amenable to you, organize your workplace, you know, join DSA, whatever, do something. Right. Um, but, but Ryan, the young people are rejecting Biden out of hand. Are they aware of who Trump is and what him taking over the country will mean? I mean, why even think about how disappointed you are in Biden oh, without I... recognizing that the whole game will be over if you don't stand up against Trump? I mean, why do you have to trash your side without recognizing the clear and present danger that the other side presents? I think that, you know, the other part of that poll that is notable is... Uh, was that in a head-to-head -head matchup against uh, Trump, Biden was still ahead. So people don't, I think that's probably the biggest reason why Biden is so unpopular is it seems like he's not doing anything to protect the country from the threat of Trump. You know, it's like we, we put him in office to shore up the institutions. And, you know, particularly when it comes to the Supreme Court, 
which might be just handing down this, like just eviscerating the whole democratic system through rule by decree, he is complaining that him doing anything would undermine the legitimacy of the court. You know, like, like he won't, he won't take the steps necessary to, you know, make sure that there even is a presidential election in 2024. And like, if, if, if he can't do that, you know, it, it's somebody else is going to, going to have to, you know, to have even a prayer of saving this thing. It's, it seems to me at least. Well, as I mentioned, uh, you know, the, the interview I did on Sunday with Jeff Charlotte, who spent time with these militias and uh, these Christian nationalist churches and and his articles about the new civil war. These people do want a civil war, and they showed us a taste of it uh, on January the 6th, and there's a lot of them, and they're organized, and the Republican Party is basically using them as their stormtroopers. They're using this anti-democratic putsch based upon the idea that they won an election that they lost. Therefore, they're going to rig the future election so that they won't lose. I mean, this is inherently an attack on democracy itself. So, and once it's gone, I don't know that you can bring it back. So again, I would hope that somebody out there could basically point out that we are at a critical moment here and we could lose the whole ball game if we don't wake up and focus on what the real problem is. Yeah, it's uh, it looks like they're aiming for basically national Jim Crow. You know, Jim Crow's in the South. It was like an apartheid, you know, police state enforced with pervasive threats of violence and terroristic, you know, lynchings and stuff. Um, and you can see that they're absolutely willing to, you know, use and even eager to, to just punish the, the liberal cities. Um, and I will say one good thing that is coming out of the January 6th hearing is I think it's sort of lit a fire under the hindquarters of Merrick Garland, the attorney general. It really seems like the FBI has sort of stepped up their investigation of the Trump officials including John Eastman, who was like the number one uh, Trump sort of uh, point man on the whole thing. And, um, you know, that's the sort of thing where if you get in a, if you get a trial going and you start finding evidence and stuff like that, then it can create a, a logic of its own. And, you know, one thing, the one hope that I have is that the, the far right is so confident about being able to win without even facing a, 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 a pushback that they will overstep their bounds. And that's basically what happened during the Civil War. Uh, it may be a pretty bloody next few years, but, you know, you, you got to fight it in any way you can. Well, Ron Cooper, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I'm speaking with Ryan Cooper, who is Managing Editor at the American Prospect, and he's the co-host also of the Left Anchor podcast, as well as the author of the new book, How Are You Going to Pay for That? Smart Answers to the Dumbest Questions in Politics. And he has an article at ryancooper.com, Will No One Defend the American Republic? We're going to take a brief station break back with an assessment of the upcoming January the 6th hearing at which the former spokesperson for the Oath Keepers militia will testify.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Brian Levin, a criminologist, civil rights attorney, professor of criminal justice, and director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University, San Bernardino, where he specializes in analysis of hate crime terrorism and legal issues and previously Professor Levin served as the Associate Director of Legal Affairs at the Southern Property Law Center's Clan Watch Militia Task Force in Montgomery, Alabama and he's testified before Cong- Congress's Homeland Security Subcommittee on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. Welcome to Background Briefing, Brian Levin. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us and tomorrow, uh, Tuesday, there will be a hearing uh, of the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th, the insurrection. The questions will be led by Jamie Raskin. And apparently they're going to focus on the tweet that Trump set out in the early hours of the morning on the 19th of December 2020, when Trump wrote, big protest in D.C. on January the 6th. Be there, will be wild. And apparently that tweet was published after a meeting took place on the 18th in the White House where Trump met with the conspiracy theorist Sidney Powell and Michael Flynn and the Overstock CEO Patrick Byrne and an aide of Trump's, uh, Emily Newman. And apparently they discussed this rally that they were going to plan. So do you think that tomorrow they will make a clear link between these uh, militia groups and Trump, and how he effectively used them as the tip of the spear in penetrating the Capitol so that the mob that he urged to march on the Capitol could then burst through and stop the the uh, certification of Biden's victory. Well, there is a clear link in the way that a magician's set of circles, set of hoops, kind of fits together. What's going to be interesting is how attenuated are these links? Look, The president even identified the Proud Boys during a debate. It was quite common for various symbols and various villains and conspiracy theories that the the president would promote to, to flow in these circles even without a direct link. But when we see, for instance, that certain people who have access to the president are also uh, were running in circles of various groups. For instance, Roger Stone and, and the Proud Boys providing him security. Uh, the fact that there was some kind of organization that allowed sedition charges. Uh, it's one of those stay tuned kind of things. Now, the Oath Keeper that they're having over there left in 2017. But I think there's something important here. And I've watched these groups for many, many years. I've interviewed members, gone to rallies where they were. And and what I can tell you that's so interesting is how these groups uh, came to have their own de-evolution, if you will. Uh, The Proud Boys going from kind of a violent fraternity to to kind of like brown-shirted street thugs. Uh, and that we're, we're coordinated, similarly with Oath Keepers. Um, and they adhere to, just bear with me, 
the insurrectionist doctrine of the Second Amendment. That's more than just saying the Second Amendment gives you a right to private gun ownership. What it tries to do is say that the government is generally leaning towards being illegitimate. And when it is tyrannical at some kind of subjective assessment, these armed people can rise against them. And they had a leader and social media to bring it all together. That's why I'm looking forward to seeing the details in this, like an artist's paintbrush making a scene. And this character, Jason Van Tattenhove, former spokesperson for the Oath Keepers, is going to testify tomorrow. What do you know about him? Well, he left the group in 2017 or so. He, he, he joined it a few years earlier. He was their spokesperson. But what I think will be interesting uh, would be to look at kind of this evolving MO, modus operandi, that, that the group was taking. These groups really metastasized and evolved to something more than when they first started. The, uh, all these, whether it's Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, um, there have been issues with regard to leadership in both, but also how they've been used or how they've situated themselves, perhaps, let's see, as part of a cog in these different gears of, of violent political extremism. So we saw this rise with, with, with the president and various villains that he concocted with conspiracy theories, the liberate movement. All these things took off on social media and and Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and Three Percenters and others were within this this stream, this this large their tributaries emptied into the stream. So what I'm saying to you is I'm interested in seeing how direct these relationships were, because we know that they swum in the same channels. So on the 20th of uh, December, shortly at uh, what? A couple of days after Trump makes his tweet about big protests in D.C. on January the 6th, be there, will be wild. And that happened just after he had a meeting with some of these conspirators like Sidney Powell and Patrick Byrne and uh, General Michael Flynn. And then on the 20th of December 2020, that's when the Proud Boy National Chairman Enrique Tarrio, he created an encrypted group chat called MOSD Leaders Group. And apparently he said that this was a national rally planning committee that included his top lieutenants. So did law enforcement penetrate that uh, chat group? I mean, there'd be a lot of evidence there, wouldn't there? One would think that they would have because Enrique Tarrio, the head of the Proud Boys, another entity, was, uh, was at a point an informant. But the bottom line is it might have also been uh, something where when the administration was changing and a lot of the leadership had already left or was in flux with regard to uh, the intelligence community appointment-wise, that, that, that leads weren't followed. Because I'll tell you something, we were, our center, which looked at just publicly available info, we were quite concerned and we cleared our schedule for January 6th. And we were seeing how there was this this feedback loop involving uh, things that the president would allude to. And by the way, just real briefly, we've seen this time and time again. The, just look at some data. Worst day for hate crime up to that time for the whole decade, the day after election 2016. Second, uh, second worst month 
was uh, October 2018 around the midterms, third around Charlottesville, and hate crimes peaked after the very fine people comments. So what I'm saying to you is, even when it's not, even when you don't have proof of direct coordination, we see time and time again intergroup violence uh, increasing on uh, correlating to when uh, something happens with the president. Last thing, December 2019, the worst day of the year for hate crime came when all the papers were announcing Pelosi going forward with impeachment. And we see data online with regard to invective or words like stop the steal and how this corresponds to other things. And what I'm saying to you is I'm looking forward to seeing how the process worked, how the, the spokesperson for the Oath Keeper is going to say, this is how we recruited, this is how we tried to make outreach to folks in government. This will be helpful in putting these pieces together, even though he hadn't been with the group for some time. But there's enough testimony out there and enough evidence, you know, evidence about bringing explosive to the D.C. area and other things that I think what we're going to see when this is over, and I've, and I've testified before Benny Thompson, uh, he, he's a hero, he's, and he's not someone who's subpoena happy, by the way, um, it's going to be how, how direct are these links that ended up uh, causing this insurrection. So there is, though, I think, Brian Levin, what I'm interpreting what you're saying is that these disparate militia groups really found a leader in Trump, and he was a unifying figure. Is that what you're saying? Ian, as always, absolutely on point. Before, the one keystone that was missing, they, look, <clears throat> these guys, white pride worldwide, they were like the first on the internet back in 95. They've always mastered the technology. They also tried to master this notion of diminishing whiteness and white authority. But there was the kind of this perfect storm during the last decade, white Christians uh, became a minority in the country and the, this constant uh, call from these white supremacists then was given resonance with a fragmented social media, but also with respect to cable news channels in prime time. And Trump was able to broadcast this message in a way that would not get him banned or in some way isolated, but made, made it almost something that people wanted to see more of, even those that didn't like him. And social media had always been slow with regard to these, ver these related and parallel tributaries of violence, of, of aggression, and, the, and, and conspiracy theories and disinformation, which is now being uh, uh, exploited by even more malefactors. So yes, I think he was doing it for political currency, but what I can tell you is, when we did a chart and we put hate crimes together with online invective around the November 2016 election, it became one line. So it's very interesting seeing how uh, invective, but when it's transmitted by influencers, the highest in socio-political communication, how it has immediate violent impacts downstream. And one thing that we're seeing in our report, which is coming out soon, hate crimes up four years in a row. So do you think, though, that the case can be made clearly to the public that this was a, a, essentially a fascist coup attempt on January the 6th. It was orchestrated by Trump and a coterie of his inner circle. The Proud Boys did the first reconnaissance early 
They found the weak spots on the Capitol, and then they waited for Trump to rally this vast crowd, so they had the bodies to force their way in, and Trump obliged by sending the crowd and even promising to go with them, and apparently was upset that he couldn't do that. And we learned from the testimony that he um, throttled, <laughs> attempted to throttle the head of his Secret Service detail who wouldn't let him go with the crowd. The testimony that we heard from, from Cassidy Hutchinson made it clear that many in the crowd were armed and that they didn't want them, the Secret Service didn't want them in, in on the rally and uh, he made them take away the magnetometers because uh, he said these people aren't going to use their guns against me. So that there's mounting evidence that this is all planned and Trump is the leader. So at the end of the day, Brian, I'm waiting for somebody to point out that we have a problem in this country. We had an attempted fascist coup. They haven't gone away. The whole stop the steal thing has organized and unified them, and Trump is likely to announce he's running for president again in 2024. So we could have another fascist coup. In fact, we could have a fascist takeover if Trump is reelected, uh, and particularly if violence is used. So I can't think of anything more serious than this political moment we're in. Well, one thing, let's look at the facts most favorable uh, to President Trump. Um, it doesn't look good because even if his relationship was somewhat attenuated, you know, courts have ruled, for instance, as a matter of law, that you can have a conspiracy with people you don't even know. In other words, uh, a target, an event is identified and a mafioso sends out a signal. Um, courts have looked at that. But the bottom line as well, no matter how attenuated that link is, we know that he's aware of who these groups are. We, we don't have to recount the, the, the absolute devastating set of evidence that you just uh, set forth. He also did not stop the event once it started. And he's in a special place, even if not legally, which I think he is, morally and historically to stop that violence. So what I think is so useful with what's going on here, many years ago I did a TED talk uh, on, on, on the dangers of social media, by the way, and there was an artist that painted and you couldn't make out what he was painting, and then he flipped it over and the music was, imagine it was a painting of John Lennon because he painted it upside down. And what I'm saying to you is, by the time this myriad evidence is laid out point after point, it's going to be devastating, I think, politically and legally for President Trump. But I don't think that it will evaporate that core base of his. And what I think you're alluding to is when these groups see themselves losing power, they act as an insurgency. And that was one example. And we're seeing it more and more at the local and regional level. So how this plays out, in other words, even if the next election isn't stolen or or, or, or involves in, in, in violence, we are seeing this now cascade down to the state level where control is trying to be taken with regard to not only education, but also voting and election certifications, something that is very scary if we're afraid of the kind of authoritarian uh, minority takeover. When I say minority, I mean people who are, are not empowered by the vote uh, to take action without uh, a ma majority rule uh, contributing to our governance. Well, Brian Levin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. 
Thank you as always, Ian. Stay tuned. These hearings are doing, I think, an excellent service for both history and our civic democracy. And again, I've been speaking with Brian Levin, who's a criminologist, civil rights attorney, professor of criminal justice and director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University, San Bernardino, where he specializes in analysis of hate crimes, terrorism and legal issues. Previously, Professor Levin served as the Associate Director of Legal Affairs at the Southern Poverty Law Center's Klan Watch Militia Task Force in Montgomery, Alabama, and he's testified before Congress's Homeland Security Subcommittee on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.